We ended last week in chapter 20, verse 40, where it says, and no one dared ask him any more questions, him being Jesus. No one dared ask him any more questions. Chapter 19, verse 28 through chapter 23, in Luke's gospel, recounts for us the events that happened during Passion Week. How many of you have heard of the term Passion Week, but have no idea what it means? Yeah, Christians, we kind of throw these terms up. Passion Week is basically the week before Jesus died, leading up to his crucifixion and his resurrection. That's what Passion Week is. And so chapters 19, verse 28 through 23, Luke is recording those events that are happening in the life of Jesus that very last week. Jesus enters Jerusalem on a Monday, and after that triumphal entry in chapter 19, it says that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And this was a deep wailing because Jesus knew that in just a few days, the nation would absolutely reject him as Messiah, hand him over to the Romans, nail him to a cross, and therefore bring judgment upon themselves because they had missed the day of their visitation. And so as Jesus went in on Monday, he, he kind of went into the temple grounds, he looked around to see what was going on, and because it was late, Mark's gospel tells us, he went back up into Bethany, which is over the Mount of Olives, stayed at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus probably, and then comes back down the next morning, and he returns. But he's weeping bitterly over what is happening in Jerusalem, what is happening with God's people. Matthew's account, we see more of the agony of our Lord over the nation of Israel and the center of their national identity, which was in Jerusalem, which was where the temple was, which was where the worship was, which where everybody was focused. And as he looked at this, he was grieved. And it says in, that Jesus laments in Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. And much of Jesus' agony as he's crying out, stems from a nation that was being led by men who were supposed to be shepherds of the people of God, shepherding the people of God, but rather they were leading them to the slaughter. They had, these leaders had this external hollow devotion towards God, focusing on the rules and the regulations and the do's and do nots and the appearances while denying the heart of God. They were full of greed, men full of greed. They had turned the worship of God into a way to make money off of the people of God. to fill their own desires, to fulfill those own desires for power, for prestige, and for profit. And so Jesus' first act as he goes into Jerusalem is to what? He overthrows the money changers in the temple. He drives out those who were buying and selling. Those who were taking advantage of the people, distorting the true worship of God. And, those, and he declared to those leaders in the temple, in that area, in that place, that his temple, his father's temple should be a house of prayer, but they had made it a den of robbers. 
And so in this Passion Week, as we are studying through, taking our time, the confrontation between Jesus and these religious leaders is reaching its greatest intensity and is going to culminate at them crucifying Jesus. This is an intense exchange. There's not a lot of happy things going on here. Luke, in chapter 20, gives us three quick, quick examples of this exchange, this fire that was, was being shot towards Jesus. Uh, as we went through it, like chapter 20, verse 1 through 8, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, many of which were Pharisees, came and challenged Jesus' authority. By what authority do you do this? In verses 19 through 26, that group of leaders sent their disciples, spies, and Herodians uh, along with them, uh, which was a political faction there, Matthew's gospel tells us. And those spies, they pretended to be righteous. They pretended to be sincere among Jesus. And they challenged Jesus on whether it was lawful to pay taxes or not, seeking to get him to be divided against Rome or the people so that they could eventually kill him, which they would do in a couple days. We finished last week in verse 27 through 39 where the Sadducees, another faction that denied the resurrection, challenged Jesus on the resurrection. And so you see all these different political groups are being challenged by Jesus' authority. And what happens when all these political groups were fighting together? They found a common enemy, didn't they? And it was Jesus. And Jesus responds to the Sadducees in such a way that the Sadducees, we read in verse 40 of chapter 20, says, and no one dared ask him any more questions. They were done being publicly humiliated because of the wisdom that Jesus displayed. The Sadducees were silenced. And in Matthew's gospel at this point, chapter 22 tells us that the Sadducees were silenced and the Pharisees, knowing that this happened, they started to gather up their forces and, and ask one more question, and they sent a lawyer out from among them to ask Jesus, you know, what are the greatest commandments? And that's where that exchange takes place. And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And as they are reeling from that answer, that another public defeat, the Pharisees now, they turn, Jesus turns now to ask them questions. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the chief priests, the elders had all been silenced by the answers Jesus had given. And now it was time for Jesus to ask them some questions. And so we pick up there in chapter 20, verse 41 today. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? That's King David. David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And so Jesus just throws a theological bomb in the middle of all these religious guys that are supposed to know all the answers to this. And I don't know about you, but that's not very fun. The Lord declares that the Lord himself will establish your house is what 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 13. 
that Jesus the, or the Messiah, the Jews believed that the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. It's clear through this verse, several others, all the way through that Jesus was going to be, or I say Jesus, the Messiah was supposed to be a descendant of David. They were all expecting that their Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. They, that was locked, that was clear in Scripture. And so they would often call um, the Messiah, the Messianic term, the son of David. And here we read there in 2 Samuel 7-11, through 11, the Lord declares that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, speaking to David. When your days are over, David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up an offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so with verses like these, the religious leaders focus on the fact that the Messiah would be a man. He would be a man like us. But that's not the whole truth about who the Messiah was. And Jesus wanted to bring their attention to it. He was not just a man. And so Jesus quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, which says that David called the Messiah Lord. And Jesus asked him in verse 44, David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Logical question. How many of you fathers call your son Lord? Just taking a poll. Anyone? If so, well, it's America now, so who knows? You know, that's pretty much what's going on. Yes, Lord Vader, whatever you want. No. That doesn't happen, especially in a Middle East culture, especially if you're king. You don't call your son a Lord. David calls him Lord. Jesus says, how then can he be a son? Jesus is saying, there's no way that a father is going to do that. There's no way a king is going to call his son Lord unless something else is true, that the Messiah was not only his son, but he was also Lord and God. That's the point. So Jesus points to the Pharisees that points it out to them that the Messiah was not just a man. He was not just a descendant of David. All that was absolutely true. He is the son of David, but he also is the son of God. He is deity. And just a side note, there would be no question in the Pharisees' minds that Jesus was a descendant of David. They kept meticulous records that were kept in the temple. And sadly, uh, I think as Josephus recalls, all those records were destroyed in 70 AD when this destruction that Jesus prophesied came about, and so they lost that. However, if you read Matthew and Luke's account, we see the lineage of Jesus from Mary and from Joseph, Mary by blood, Joseph by right, that Jesus was a descendant of David. And so they weren't arguing that fact. His pedigree was there. He was a son of David. So Jesus was the son of David, the son of man, but Jesus was also declaring that he was Lord because David called him Kurios in the Greek. The Septuagint translates it over. That's the name for God, Lord. That David belonged to this Lord that he is master of David. Jesus is fully man and fully God. 
the eternal word that became flesh. And it's very interesting when you deal with those who are cults, what happens is the person of Jesus Christ is always attacked. Sure, he can be a great teacher, but he is not God. Or he is one of many gods and all these types of things. So you want to look closely at past the surface of what everybody says on, on, on paper and what their website says and stuff and ask them, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Because Jesus said, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life and no one comes to the Father. No man, no woman comes to the Father except through me. And the enemy seeks for the church and everybody in it to be religious as religious can be if he can get you that way. But deny who Jesus Christ is. Very tricky. As you can imagine, as Jesus is talking to these people, Matthew twenty two forty six tells us that no one could say a word in reply. So the Sadducees were quiet, the Herodians were quiet, and now the Pharisees and the chief priests, it just says no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. That's in Matthew. Pretty wild, huh? And you can see that Jesus is confronting them in the public. There's this tension going on. Has anybody ever, um, like, watched British Parliament debate? I mean, if you ever have time for that. They go at it, don't they? I mean, they're like, oh, yeah, they're all standing up, sitting down, calling each other names and all this type of stuff. Of course, it's politish. But there's this public discourse going on that we're really kind of not so familiar with in, in those types of realms. Everybody tries to be postured and, and this type, although we're getting more sharp as we go along. But these divisions were extremely public and extremely sharp, and they were focusing on the very center of power in Jerusalem. This was cutthroat. And Jesus has just shut them all up, basically, the religious leaders, the power structure, and they're all standing there with murder in their hearts. As Jesus teaches them on the nature of the Messiah in front of all the people. And then Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 45, and everybody's there. It says, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogues in a place of honored banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for a show, they make lengthy prayers. These men, these men will be punished most severely. How do you like to say those things in front of your enemies? Jesus was not backing down. After this intense exchange, he turns to his disciples and says, beware of these guys. Look at them. Look at their hypocrisy. Now, the teachers of the law, it's also chanted. How many of you have that scribes in your Bible? Someone say scribes. Yep, a couple of you new King Jamesers, ESVers, scribes. Right, you bet. Same word, basically. Those were the lawyers of the day. The lawyers of the day. Now, 
all Pharisees were, were scribes. <clears throat> I'm sorry, not all Pharisees were scribes, but the scribes usually tended to come from the Pharisaical branch. Remember, there's all these groups of politics. The Pharisees were the legalists. And so the scribes tended to be Pharisees. And the teachers of the law, these scribes, had determined in their history that there were 613 commandments contained in the Pentateuch. The, when you hear the word Pentateuch, it's the first five books of the Bible. Otherwise called the Law of Moses, or the Law. There were 613 commandments, and the way they figured this out is 613 commandments, one for each letter of the Ten Commandments. One for each letter. Remember the Ten Commandments? Well, they were breaking it down to letters, and they took each letter and made a commandment out of it. So talk about legalism. It's a fun thing. And of these 613 commands, 248 were seen as affirmative in the positive, and 365 as negative. And those laws were also divided into heavy and light groups. The heavy ones were uh, ones being more binding than the lighter ones. And because the entire society was a religious society... All common law, all religious law, all civil law was out of the book of Moses. And so who's going to find out what I do about what? The scribes. They're the ones who are going to interpret the Bible. When you have a problem, when you need to go to court, when you need to figure out what to do, they're going to tell you what to do and what it says. The scribes, in effect, they affected every aspect of life by their interpretations because they handled all legal manners and disputes and they were revered by the people. Who do you revere in society? They were revered. They were feared. They're like, wow, those people are amazing. It was thought that God gave the law to Moses, who gave it to Joshua, who gave it to the elders, who gave it to the prophets, who gave it to the scribes. And so they were those descendants who received the word of God. They were the caretakers, the rabbis, the teachers. They were given that title, rabbi. And Jesus says to disciples, while these lawyers were standing there, beware of them, guard yourself against them. Why? And Jesus points out five things in verse 46 through 37. He says, first, they like to walk around in flowing robes. In Numbers 15, 30 through 40, God instructed the Israelites to add tassels to their robes to remind them of his commandments. So it's not as if these things were not asked, uh, the people of God were not allowed to do that. They were commanded to do that. And so the men would have these tassels attached to their rubs, and I don't want to get into all the garments and all that type of stuff, but they'd come off. But instead of having just the normal ones, they would extend them like down to the floor. they get extensions. Instead of just having, you know, maybe 10 knots on there for the Ten Commandments, they would be like 500, 613 knots. Who knows? But it's that word hem that we see when she reached out, the woman with the issue reached out and touched the hem of his garment. That's what she was grabbing onto. These tassels. And so they extended these. They made them long to, for everybody to see how spiritual they were. And they loved to be greeted with respect in the marketplace. How many of you with, um, you know, maybe some degrees or you teach somewhere or something? Hey, pastor. Yes. 
righteous, good, holy, reverend Matt. I got, I think, a better one than that. Longer, more prestigious. They loved to be greeted with respect. They loved it when people greeted them in public with their lofty titles. There's nothing wrong with, with working and earning degrees and all those types of things. But there was no humility in them whatsoever. They wanted people to know it so that they could get the worship of the people. One of the things I, uh, stories I love about uh, Christine's dad, who was a nuclear physicist, is that um, brilliant man, but you wouldn't know it. Humble as could be. You know, the people he worked with, um, they, what do they call him? Dr. Doolittle. He like, someone called him that. Like, he was, a, he was working with all the animals, but you'd never know it. He was just so kind. Um, but, they loved, in Matthew 23, verse 7, says they loved to be called rabbi. You know, how are you, teacher? It's good to see you. In Alfred uh, Edersheim's classic, the book, uh, it's called The Life and Times of Jesus, the Messiah. It's a real thick lead. If, you, none of you, if you, any of you have sleeping problems, I have it a copy on my desk. It says, so weighty was the duty of respectful salutation by the title rabbi that no one neglected it because they'd be fearful of the heaviest punishment. It's pretty wild, huh? They love the praise. And to have the most important seats at the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets, they sought the chief seat in the synagogue. They sought when they would gather together in the synagogue, there would be seats on the stage with all the important people sitting here facing that way. Have you ever seen denominations like that? There's a tradition behind it. But they sought it. They loved it. And they wanted the place of honor next to the person who was most important. They wanted that attention. They wanted the honor. That was what was in their heart. And this, this is a reason that we don't wear religious robes here. Not that you can't wear religious robes, but Why? It's why we don't have the elders seated on stage, except for when you grill them with questions. You know, if you've met me, you try to call me pastor, what do I tell you? Call me Matt. Why is that? Because we're servants of Jesus, the teacher, the rabbi, the father. Amen? So, when we go out to have a potluck, who do we try to let go first? The elderly, right? Our, our, our elder saints. Why is that? We want to esteem our elders. We want to deny ourselves of what we want, and we want to let others go first, right? The first shall be last. The last shall be first. We let others be seated first. We let others go in line. You know, we let others have the be best seats. You know, as leaders and elders, we're, we're not to be marked by pride, but rather humility and service and self-denial, just like our chief shepherd, Lord Jesus. Amen? That's a heavy calling. Need prayer. Not perfect. Amen? But nevertheless, 
Jesus has some serious things to say when that is abused. And I know the Lord's still working on me, but Jesus said, watch out for those guys. The guys who have to be best, the guys who have to be in front, who have all the attention, who go by titles, wear religious garb and clothes, and clothes and no one drive things that no one can afford and have their name inside of jets and you can go on and on and on and all about all that stuff. It's about them. Beware of them, Jesus says. Steer clear. Guard yourself against them. 4 verse 47, he goes on. They devour widows' houses. Do you ever notice that it's the poor people who get taken advantage in false religion? Throughout the centuries? That's one of the reasons there was a Protestant Reformation in, in the 1500s. You know, Martin Luther just looked at it and said, the indulgences are out of control. You are taxing the poor people like crazy so you can build this crazy cathedral and you're telling them, and if they don't do it, you won't pray for them and, you, and they won't, you know, their, their, their relatives are in purgatory and all this kind of stuff. And he just nailed that to the door and said, enough of that. That does not represent God. The widows who have nothing being taken advantage of by these wolves. This takes me back to Luke 18 where the widow is crying out for justice. Remember, she went to the judge. She had to go to the judge. She had no one to speak for her on her behalf. She was a widow. Her husband was gone. And in that society, the man spoke as head of the house. And when that's there, there is no protection. So how do you get protection as a woman in society? You need to hire some. You need to go to a lawyer. So they went in need of legal help to lawyers. And so the lawyers would come in and they would take advantage of these widows in distress and charge them, which was against the law. But because of their greed for riches, they did it anyways. And they did this by taking advantage of hospitality. If they couldn't afford something, they'd stay in their house and, and, and consume all their stuff and cheat them out of their, out of their, staves and, uh, their estates and mismanage their property. And they took their houses as collateral. And they know they could never, ever pay it back. That's all according to the Baker Exegetical Commentary, another lofty book you can have fun with. And so they, in the process of doing this, they devoured, or as the Greek says, they ate up the widows' homes. The exact opposite of what these leaders were supposed to be. And lastly, they were marked by a showy prayers. And for a show or for pretense, they made lengthy prayers. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for a long time. Jesus prayed all night. But it's the idea of doing it with a heart to draw attention to self and to pray in such a way that people look at your words and they go, man, aren't they a masterful, you know, blah, 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 blah. Now, we know that naturally happens by certain people who've been praying to the Lord a lot. And you listen to them and go, gosh, Lord, I wish I could pray like that. They just spent time with Jesus, you know? But this was done in such a way to not really pray to God, but to get the praise of people. They loved it. And they stood in the courts and in church and they, and they did this. 
Matthew taught against, uh, Jesus taught against this in Matthew chapter 6, 5 through 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus warns the disciples about being hypocrites. In their prayer, he says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have, re- they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And that's the principle of prayer, is that what happens in public should already be starting in private. Amen? Jesus tells the disciples, guard yourself against these guys. They're all about the praise of people, the love of money, not the love of God. Don't be fooled by what they wear or how they pray or what they drive and all that type of stuff as if you have to aspire to that. Don't be fooled. Now, please don't close your Bibles just yet. We're, into the, we're at the end of the chapter, correct? These chapters end, but I have to add just four more verses today. Chapter 20, verse 1 through 4, and I think it's important that we keep reading so we get the context. Here we go. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. And he also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Verse 3, truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. And all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put it in, put in all she had to live on. Now, I hope you're ready for me to get all the money I can out of you. <laughs> Do you think that's what Jesus is doing here? As I as I have read this and I've taught on it before, I always saw it in the context of sacrificial giving. You know, and I, and I do, I see that. How many times have you read something and then God shows you something else? Well, I'm learning. Anyone else? And yeah, you've got tons of angles of sacrificial giving, but as I look at this, we're just read about Jesus condemning the religious leaders in the few verses before, right? And then he throws this thing in here as he looks up and sees this widow. And then right after that, he talks about the destruction of the temple. So it would be a great time between condemning the the leaders in the destruction of the temple to throw in a little thing about giving. Is that what God's doing? I don't think so. I don't think it's about sacrificial giving. And the fact that Jesus said something about widows just being devoured just a couple of verses before makes me think. He's connecting a thought. Luke is. Just a few verses earlier, and now we see a widow giving her last two pennies leads me to think that Jesus is not happy about what he's saying. A widow who is poor being robbed by a system that has perverted the worship of God to mean that a widow now becomes destitute. Now, let me reverse engineer that. Jesus was sitting in the court of women. As we talked about, you walk into the temple, there's the outer court, the Gentile court, and then that's where Gentiles hung out, no matter who you were. You walk in a little bit closer, and then there's a court of women. This is where the women of Israel could gather. They separated the men and women when they worshipped. However, it was also the common area where everybody could gather together and be taught, both men and women. And so there was teaching going along in this area. And as Jesus looks, there's this dedicated area within the court of women called the treasury. Because if you're going to do the giving, why not make it to where everybody can give, right? 
You know, let's not limit that. Let's maximize it so everybody can give, no matter who you are, we'll accept all your money. Well, there's 13 different boxes in this thing. Uh, Shofar leads down to a box, and, and basically you drop your coins in these boxes. They're all dedicated for different aspects of ministry. Some were free will offerings. Some were dedicated towards certain things of the temple, all those things. And so people would go into this place. They would give their offerings. So just as Jesus finishes warning about the teachers of the law, he looks up across and sees this area from him, and he sees the rich putting in their gifts in the boxes. The word for rich here just means that they are supplied. It's not talking about exorbitantly rich. It just means that they could give and have plenty left over to live on. That's the word. They were merely supplied. Many of us fall under that definition this morning. We can give to the Lord, and we will survive. Amen? We're rich under this definition. Jesus didn't say anything negative about their offerings. He wasn't saying it was bad or anything like that. He doesn't say anything about their hearts or anything like that. All he says is the rich were putting in their gifts, and their gifts were proportionally less than the widows. The widow is called poor in verse 2, and that is important to note because not all widows were poor. This one was. The word for poor here in verse 2 means needy. It means needy in verse 2, okay? Walk with me just for a second. She is a widow in need, and Jesus saw her put her two very small copper coins, nothing of value to the rich, right? But of great value to her. He saw it, take it and put it into that thing. And Jesus in verse 3 says, Truly I tell you that this Poor widow, he says, poor again, has put in more than all the others. And these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she has, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Verse 2 calls the woman poor, needy. Verse 3, that word translated poor, it means reduced to beggary. It's not just poor, it means she has nothing. It's the same word we use for blessed are the poor in spirit but destitute. She has no influence, no position, no honor, no power, no money, no resources. It's all gone. She just put it in. And I think it's probably right to assume that Jesus was not happy that this was happening. That the system had become so corrupt and the leaders so greedy that a needy widow would think that God demands her to become destitute financially to get his favor, is against, I think, God's heart. I don't think Jesus was pleased. I don't think he was angry at her. Understand, God receives our worship. Don't don't get me wrong. But I think he was upset about what was going on. That why that woman felt she had to do that when she was in the situation she was. I think he was pointing out how God was so misrepresented in the very place that should have been a place of worship. And what follows this story is the discussion on the destruction of the temple. It seems fitting to me. Yes, God desires all of us, right? We know that. He desires us to be poor in spirit, destitute in spirit, and giving to God is pleasing to Him, but not at the expense of being impoverished. We've got people going to Africa now with people who have absolutely nothing. 
telling them to give up their very last whatever they had so they receive God's blessing. And they go build their giant, huge buildings, some of the biggest you've ever seen, these churches. That is a gross misrepresentation of God. When you hear people pleading to widows and the poor and the reason why you don't have is because you need to give more and all this type of stuff, these are the guys God's talking about. And it's, believe me, it's in the heart of any man can go down that road. I'm not sitting here saying, look at them. I mean, pray for me in my heart, amen? You too, right? Greed can jump in there anywhere, but beware of those who seek to prey upon the poor and the needy and the vulnerable in the name of God. Jesus says back in chapter 20, verse 47, of those religious leaders who were operating like that, that they will receive the greater condemnation. Just as God is a rewarder of good, he will also punish justly. And these men will receive the greater condemnation. The Old Testament commanded that widows in need be, or to be cared for. And, then, and we were just reading as a staff this past week, First Timothy chapter 5, and it says, it lays out the guidelines for those uh, who need help, widows who need help, and how to minister to them. They had to be 60 years old. They, didn't, they had to not have a family. They had to be destitute. They had to be poor. They had to be really, truly a widow. And that it was the church's responsibility to help those widows. They could be added to the list. In James 1.27, we're told that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We bless those in need. We help those in need, especially of the household of faith. Peter says of these false teachers in, chapter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. So Jesus warns his disciples and us to stay clear of them, to guard against them. And so may the Lord not, we not just be a, a rigid people. I know, I know, how many of you are kind of going, well, this doesn't relate to me. You know, I understand that. This is where we are in you have to realize, and this is the important thing about the church, is that the enemy is always at work. He doesn't want the gospel to go forward and he's going to get in one way or the other. And be careful of, of, of the teaching that you take in. Be careful of the people you follow. Challenge me and what I say and see if it's in here and if how I live matches up. Amen? I don't want you to go off a cliff. <laughs> you need to follow the Lord Jesus. Yes, submit to your elders, but man, eyes wide open, full of the Spirit. Amen? May God protect you from this. Beware, guard yourselves. It's a narrow path. Jesus is fighting against this to the very end, and their greed is going to overcome in God's plan, and crucify Jesus, their murder, because Jesus started tapping in on this. This is his church, church. May, you know, if you give to him, you know, praise the Lord if that's worship and honor to you, but don't ever feel that somehow you have to receive God's favor 
and you don't have much to live on that you've got to give. You know what I mean? God's a big God. He can take care of himself, right? So I just want you to not have that burden. At the same time, it's the joy of giving to the Lord. And those of us who are rich, we should. Amen? But don't fall into that trap and that head game. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you and we want to thank you for this warning you've given. Lord, you're, you're dealing with some very heavy things. But at the same time, God, you are so sweet in that you are protecting those you love. You're keeping us from the, the wide path, the, from the, the path of the wolf, Lord. You're keeping us in the, in the safe pasture and you restore our souls, even though we walk in dangerous areas, Lord, and in dangerous times. And so, God, I ask right now, Lord, that you would continue to protect this church, protect our homes and our hearts, that we may not be swayed one way or the other by um, false doctrine or be intimidated into this or that, but we'd be tightly in love with you, Lord, and following you and being led by the Spirit. And may your church thrive with, with people who love you and follow you. May your word go forward with power, God, in this valley in all the churches, we not only lift up our church, Lord, we lift up the churches in the valley. Protect them, Lord. Keep them, shepherd them, love them. Lead them and guide them, God. And we ask all these things in, in your name, Lord Jesus, to your glory, Father. Amen.